Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition we visit the Trans-Tasman 3-Minute Thesis Competition and return to Skepticamp. But first up, here's the news. Poverty is a denial-of-service attack on human brains. Denial-of-service attacks are where a computer is overwhelmed by requests for communication and processing. The extra work required to deal with the extra mental effort required to survive on less money than you need, all the extra calculations on what you can buy, what you should buy, when you can buy it, where you should buy it, and how much longer you can put off spending what little money you have, all effectively reduce your measurable IQ. You often don't have enough brain power left over to make the best decisions or avoid repeating mistakes. The paper is called Poverty Impedes Cognitive Function and was published in the journal Science. The international study was based at Princeton University and found that pressing financial worries had an immediate impact on poor people's ability to perform well in cognitive and logic tests. One study found poor people lost 13 IQ points or the sort of impairment you feel after staying awake all night and working the next day. Scrounging to cut costs and pay bills costs measurable IQ points. Previous studies either blame the poor people's personality or their environment for keeping them poor. The new research suggests that being poor can stop you from escaping poverty, because worrying about every cent gives you less resources to make better decisions and you make more mistakes. We're not talking about stress, tiredness, effort, or even nutrition, but actual mental resources. In a New Jersey shopping mall, researchers gathered 400 low- and middle-income shoppers and subjected them to a battery of tests to measure IQ and impulse control. Their income varied from $20,000 to $70,000 per year. Half of the people were first asked to think about what they would do if their car broke down and the repair was very expensive. Would they pay it off in full, get a loan, do without the car for a while? It was among these people that performance dipped 13 IQ points if they were poor. If the cost of the repairs was less, poor people did better on the tests. Wealthy people did well under both circumstances. In India, the researchers found that farmers had diminished cognitive performance in the month before getting paid for their harvest compared to afterwards, when the bank accounts were refilled. Their IQ went up about 10 points after they were paid, and their error rate went down. The conclusion is that public services need to take into account that poor people aren't stupid or lazy, but they are overloaded. So you need to make forms easier to fill in, and the bureaucratic hurdles less trouble. There needs to be more guidance in how to apply for help, and more forgiveness for unexpected absences. Poor people who've made mistakes need to be allowed to try again.
I gave a talk at the Skepticamp Skeptical Unconference about thorium as an alternative nuclear fuel. Thorium is safe, clean, cheap, better at supplying 24-7 power than solar or other fuelless energy sources, destroys nuclear waste, and can't make nuclear weapons fuel. At least, that's what some people are saying. I will show you that the arguments in favour of thorium as an alternative nuclear fuel, to save us from global warming, are not just wrong, but false. But first, what is the waste that comes out the back, and who profits from thorium? The mining business model is to dig stuff up, burn it, and throw the waste out the back. It would be very nice for miners if mining nuclear fuel was a solution to the problem of global warming caused by mining fossil fuel. Uranium power plants are too expensive to make a profit without government subsidies, and in 60 years of nuclear power, only Finland has buried its nuclear waste. According to the OECD, uranium will run out in about 100 years. So we get 100 years of unprofitable electricity in return for being stuck with millions of tonnes of poisonous waste for 240,000 years. So instead we turn to thorium as a source of nuclear power. I've seen lots of people in the sceptical community supporting thorium as an alternative form of nuclear power, but I've never heard them ask any questions. For me as a sceptic, there's one key question which none of the advocacy in Cosmos magazine, New Scientist, or the many, many articles online have addressed. If thorium goes in, what's the waste that comes out the back? Given that uranium's poisonous waste is a key part of why it's unacceptable to many people, it's a key question but it's never addressed. And who is funding the campaign for thorium as a nuclear alternative? The arguments in favour of thorium as an alternative to uranium fuel are deliberately misleading people by joining together three separate things and calling them thorium. The three separate things are thorium, molten salt reactors and breeder reactors. First, the real issue, thorium-232 fuel. It's just a replacement for uranium. It has one trick, transmuting into uranium-233 when you bombard it with neutrons. It's a good trick, but it's not magic. Uranium-233 is more dangerously radioactive, and therefore more expensive to handle, than uranium-235 used in commercial nuclear reactors. And you can put uranium-233 in a conventional reactor, but you'd make more money selling it as a nuclear weapons fuel. Thorium is a problem to store because it gives off poisonous radioactive radon gas during its 14 billion year lifetime. Thorium is so abundant that it's a radioactive waste hazard for miners. They have to go to great expense to prevent it from poisoning the water around mines. In a reactor, thorium gets transmuted into uranium, which then becomes plutonium and neptunium and all the same poisonous nuclear waste that you get from uranium-235. Someone in the audience actually suggested that because more uranium-233 is converted to toxic waste than regular uranium-235 in a commercial reactor, that it means that there is actually less waste, because there's less original material left over. That's like saying, because more wood is burned from one tree than another, that there's less smoke. It's a deliberate attempt to confuse two different uses of the word waste. It's also said that you can simply turn off a thorium reactor, because thorium won't react until you find neutrons at it and convert it to uranium. So all you do is 
turn off your neutron accelerator. The problem with that is once you've converted thorium into uranium, the uranium goes on reacting on its own. So thorium is not inherently safe or clean, and it can be used to make nuclear weapons. For the safety argument, you need to associate thorium with molten salt reactors, using fuel liquefied in a molten salt solution. You can use uranium or plutonium in addition to thorium. The last working molten salt reactor was closed down in 1969 by the US military. Their claim to fame is being more resistant to steam explosions than modern water-based reactors. Unfortunately, nobody has any ready for proof of concept, let alone production, despite a Czech Australian mining consortium courting the Australian government for $300 million. Which may be where the money comes from. Thorium's pretty cheap. If it suddenly had a new use, you could make a lot of money if you owned lots of it. It's going to be very expensive to develop molten salt reactors to the level where they can be commercial. And, like uranium reactors, they'll need subsidies from the taxpayer. Because it still won't be profitable. Molten salt reactors compare terribly to solar power for baseload, because solar power is commercially available. And there's many ways to store solar power generated during the day for use at night. Already designed uranium reactors take 20 years to build. So completely new design with a new thorium fuel won't be ready for baseload 24-7 power for several decades. Now, to burn up nuclear waste, you need to connect thorium with breeder reactors. Breeder reactors are banned across most of the world because they inevitably create nuclear weapons fuel. Their design is optimised to produce plutonium. Breeder reactors and proliferation of nuclear weapons go together. Breeder reactors transmit uranium and its waste products into plutonium and other waste products, suitable for a range of different kinds of nuclear weapons. Generally, the more times you bombard a radioactive material with neutrons from a breeder reactor, the more radioactive it becomes. Sometimes that comes with a shorter half-life, so you end up only having to wait several hundred years instead of several thousand years before the waste stops being poisonous. Two problems with that. One is that any waste product that outlives its producer never seems to get properly managed. Witness the current nuclear waste problem. The other problem is that breeders are not so controllable, and you end up with hundreds of different waste products instead of just one. And that range of differences becomes wider and wider every time you run the breeder cycle again. Some of these new products are radioactive for billions of years. Some for millions, thousands, some only for decades. And the ones that only last decades are so radioactive that they're a danger to anybody working at the reactor. I've shown you that thorium-232 is not safe to store, and it's not safe to react. It's not clean. It produces radioactive waste the same as uranium-235 in commercial reactors. It's not better at baseload than solar, because the technology has not been developed since 1969. The whole point of thorium as a fuel is to convert it to uranium-233 as the first step, and that's an excellent nuclear weapons material. The second step is to breed it into plutonium. And plutonium is the gold standard for nuclear weapons fuel. So why push it? Well, hypothetically, if you had lots of thorium waste that you'd like to sell at a profit, access to breeder reactors are a license to print money 
because you can sell nuclear weapons fuel. If your business model is digging stuff up, burning it and throwing waste out the back, you really don't want people switching to systems like solar power that don't use any fuel. Even if they're safer, cleaner, cheaper, better at baseload power and can't be used to make nuclear weapons. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. The finals for the Trans-Tasman 3-Minute Thesis Competition were held at the University of Western Sydney's Parramatta campus. People flew in from all over Australia, New Zealand and Hong Kong to compete having won their places in competitions at their home universities. Everyone had to present their research thesis in three minutes in a way that a non-specialist could understand with only one slide. There were 44 participants on the day, presenting a new thesis every three minutes all day. I went to watch and listen, and at the cocktail party afterwards, I spoke with the participants. The music you hear in the background was live, I didn't add it in. The grand final winner was Kelsey Kennedy from the Faculty of Engineering, Computing and Mathematics at the University of Western Australia in Perth. Her research is about detecting cancer. Her three-minute thesis was called Feeling for Cancer, an Imaging Tool to Make Breast Cancer Surgery More Effective. Well, congratulations on winning the grand final of the Trans-Tasman three-minute thesis. Thank you very much. (laughs) And how did you get involved with the competition? Well, I actually first became um, aware of the three-minute thesis competition when University of Western Australia hosted the national finals two years ago. So we had a winner the year before that and got to host the competition. And I went along and watched it. And I was early in my PhD at the time, but I thought, you know, this is something I'd like to try, I think, one day. So it worked out this year that I was able to go along to the UWA competition and give it a shot, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) And how did you find it with well there were 44 competitors today all of them very good and all with completely different topics i have absolutely loved it um not only hearing the speeches but the chance to talk to people all the way from the bus ride in the hotel this morning through lunch and everything just engaging with these people because even though we come from diverse backgrounds i think that we found that we're all pretty like-minded and that we like sharing our research and of course everyone is somewhat qualified at it, I would say, having won their respective universities. So um, it's been absolutely incredible listening to these people that I've gotten to chat to, then stand up and give these outstanding presentations. It's been inspiring, really. Yeah. And just briefly, what's the title of your thesis? Oh, well, the title of my three-minute thesis talk was called Feeling for Cancer, a new imaging technology to make breast cancer surgery more effective. I think I got all the words right there. But yeah, feeling for cancer was the main thing that I talked about and actually talking about how cancer, you know, has different hardness or stiffness than healthy tissues and using that to detect it um, more effectively. I think one of the clever things that stood out in the three minutes was the fact that you turned something that was a problem that they're depressing the skin into the solution. Yeah, yeah, I think kind of using something that physicians already take advantage of on a daily basis is a very natural thing to implement into something that's more quantitative. So um, I should mention that this technology is sort of a platform technology, if you like, that we've developed within our lab. And my PhD is actually looking to extend the capabilities of this technology to incorporate um, these measurements of how hard the tissue is. Yeah, yeah. 
And is there any advice you give to other people that are going to enter the three-minute thesis competition? I would say practice, definitely. But before you give the first talk, I think it's really important to spend, even though it's three minutes, spend a lot of time thinking very hard about what is the main point you want to get across and how are you going to get that to be relatable. So just really, I know there's so many things that went through my mind that I could have talked about, but really just trying to bring it back to the one point that you want to leave people with, I think is very helpful. And then once you've got that practicing for your friends and family until they're sick of it, probably will help as well. <laughs> well, Kelsey, thank you very much. Thank you very much as well. That was Kelsey Kennedy from Monash University, the winner of the grand finals of the Trans-Tasman Three-Minute Thesis Competition 2013. Next, I spoke with Kimberly Mercury from the Faculty of Psychology at the Australian Catholic University. Kimberly studies cognitive processing in heroin users. Her three-minute thesis was titled, Seeing into Tomorrow, Today. How did you get involved with the three-minute thesis competition? Um, my supervisors encouraged us to do this. So I'm part of a research team at uni, and they uh, encouraged us to get involved in more research-oriented projects. I'm actually looking at whether they have the ability to mentally project into the future, and the reason for that is a lot of the therapeutic techniques that we use in counselling require them to look into the future. So if they have impairments and disability, then maybe the way that we work with them in a clinical setting might have to change. And do you think it's the inability to look in the future that got them addicted or has the addiction did that to them? It's very chicken and egg. And I get this a lot from people who are interested in my research asking me that question and we're not attempting to make any claims about what came first. Um, what my goal is, is to show that, get an understanding of what their ability is now and work with that. Um, we're still in the process of testing. So we've got quite big sample sizes and um, looking to publish quite soon. So yeah. Well, Kimberly, thank you very much. Thank you. Next, I chatted with Canva Naya from Monash University's Department of Art, Design and Architecture in Melbourne. Canva's research is about helping people with Alzheimer's disease. His three-minute thesis was called Age Mate. How did you get involved with the three-minute thesis competition? Um, basically, just uh, through advertising, I got an email from one of my supervisors, you know, stating that I should try out for it. And I, I thought, why not? You know, it's a fantastic way to, you know, sort of tell other people about my research. Because I always have that trouble when trying to explain it to people. So I thought, yeah, you know, it should be some fun. And uh, yeah, it's been great. You've developed an easy to use device for people suffering from Alzheimer's. Yeah, so it's, it's basically a, a personalized multimedia device for people with dementia. And what we're trying to do is, uh, is make it available for people with mild, moderate and severe dementia, mainly focusing on a dedicated device. Because um, at the moment, there's nothing out there. You know, everything's done on generic computers. And I think that is a, a problem because on generic computers, you've also got a generic interface and that's just too hard for someone with dementia. That's correct. I mean, uh, that's one of the challenges, you know, coming from the Department of Design, you know, that's sort of where all this comes in because my project is a collaboration between the Department of Design and Psychology. So it's one thing to know about people with dementia, but then coming up with the interface has been the main challenge. And uh, I've spent three years now polishing up that interface. And what we've found is that the interface needs to change with the impairment level. So we have a special interface for mild dementia and then another one for severe dementia as well. 
And could you briefly run through the, the options that your device sure. offers people? Yeah. So at this stage, we have personalized music, videos, photographs, and a, uh, a section called talk, which is pre-recorded messages from family members. And um, in, uh, in the future, we're looking at introducing a, uh, the television on, on the device rather than having two screens in a bedroom, as well as the radio. And some of the residents of the HK facility have suggested games and puzzles and also a world map, just so they know where certain countries are because they're always watching the news. So we're sort of looking at it as almost just downloading the apps that you require, you know, depending on what everyone wants. And uh, yeah, sort of take it from there. But for now, it's basically test, testing out these four uh, media options. And how far away do you think you are from starting to deploy it? Well. We have until the end of November in which to submit five working prototypes. We have a group of psychologists who will be testing out our device next year on uh, individuals with uh, mild and severe dementia. And uh, depending on how that goes, with a few changes, I think you know as soon as possible, it would be great to have it out in the, in the, in the market. Especially if we can um, globalize this you know, just by changing the language, I think it'll be fantastic for every aged care facility to have one in their in their bedrooms. Kamva, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Lastly, I spoke with Lisa McLean, the Research and Graduate Studies Manager of the Faculty of Education at Charles Sturt University, and Cassily Charles, the Academic Writing Coordinator for Research Candidates at Charles Sturt University. She helps them with their writing. Together, they organised an interactive live-streamed three-minute thesis competition that stretched across the world online in real time. You've organised a live streamed live participation three-minute thesis competition that was prior to this that involved people not just all in one place being live streamed but people that interacted from all over the place. Yes that's right CSU's got a long experience with distance education and we have got research students who are not all in, only all over the state all over the country but all over the world so we were able to uh, have participation from research candidates in India and Switzerland as well as Melbourne and Brisbane and all around New South Wales and it was a great success in fact our two finalists from that competition were are both joining us from overseas, one from Switzerland and one from India. They actually ended up choosing to travel to Bathurst for our institutional grand final because at the moment we can't send a representative to the Trans-Tasman competition virtually through an online presentation and we hope that that might change eventually and uh, that all of our research candidates could participate in something as fantastic as a three-minute thesis through a synchronous online presentation. One of the things with the online event, we used Adobe Connect to manage the, the participation of the off-campus participants. We had a live audience, we had a live audience in the room, we, we um, conducted the online heat at the same time as we conducted the Albury heat, so we had an audience and there was, a, that on, there was the live vibe. I guess we could have asked the participants off-campus to record a video and send that in and watch that but it that to me that lacked that live spontaneous thing that is part of the 3MT competition so it was fantastic that we could use Adobe Connect but Cassidy actually convinced me that the online live heat could work uh, and it did wonderfully. 
Well, can I ask you a different question? You've just been to the finals and the grand finals of the Trans-Tasman three-minute thesis competition. What's it like? What do you think it's like? I've just sat sat through it as well. You sat through 44 three-minute theses of brilliant people talking about amazing things. Do you feel that your, your mind has expanded? I'm actually exhausted, you know, thinking of all these fantastic people doing this fantastic work. I'm exhausted, but it's exhilarating at the same time. And also reflecting back on the on our institution's participants that that anybody could be part of this competition. It's not, uh, they're all fantastic, they're all brilliant and, you know, it's just been a wonderful day. One of the things that I think we really got out of the experience of organising the event for the first time at CSU this year was seeing how much it added to the sense of community between the research candidates in multiple disciplines who otherwise wouldn't even get to meet necessarily. Uh, And that I think is probably one of the reasons why we feel strongly that we want to see more synchronous online participation because so many research candidates are working full time or in another state or in another country and that sense of community is a huge contribution to their experience and often their outcomes. Why shouldn't everyone have access to such a wonderful thing as this three-minute thesis competition? Lisa and Cassily, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Ian. Thank you to Lisa McLean and Cassily Charles from Charles Sturt University. You can find out more about the three-minute thesis competition at www.3minutethesis.org. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. And please look for us on Facebook and like our page. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and 2 Triple H in Hornsby, Karingai. We're syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.